Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We're going to build on last week and pray that uh, God will keep us directed into his word and also our hearts uh, directed on him. And we um, believe had a good foundation set last week. I heard feedback from a few people and um, about the amount of content. So uh, as a fourth grade teacher, you always plan for more than what the time allows. We didn't have that problem last week. We filled every minute. So hopefully we'll have some time for discourse maybe at the end if you have a question. Uh, But this morning we'll begin our second lesson with a very brief summary of the first. The Holy Spirit is the third member, the person of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are described as being one in essence or being and three in person. So I'll say that one more time. One in essence, three in person. These distinct persons are not three separate gods. We are not polytheists here. They are not three separate minds with three separate sets of attributes, but are three distinct persons who share all the fullness of the Godhead in unity. The Holy Spirit exhibits personal, and the technical term, hypostatic attributes, such as intelligence, a will, a desire for a certain end, feeling and emotion. As we learned last week, it can be grieved, pleased, and power, the ability to effect change. Uh, which is where our title of this series, Our Effectual Helper, everything the Holy Spirit desires to do, He accomplishes. He is not an impersonal force or energy that the Father and Son simply wield to execute their own will, but He Himself is sovereignly reigning and accomplishing what He desires in perfect unison in harmony with the Father and the Son. We learn that each of the members of the Godhead has distinct roles within his being. The Holy Spirit, and this is in your handout, proceeds from both the Father and the Son. He does the will of the Father and the Son, just as Jesus did the will of his Father. I'll refer back once again to John 14, 26, which could be our theme verse for our series. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And that's Christ speaking in John 14, 26. Last week we learned about historic theology or looking through history at what the church has stood for through the centuries, and we use that to help us formulate our idea of God, theology. The Athanasian Creed was first written in the 5th century. 
it was finalized and added to and, and uh, we could say perfected, but it's of course a man's writing, so it's not fully perfected, but it's a good help. The Athanasian Creed says, the Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. Some people would teach that he was created. He was a created being. That's a false teaching. However, the Son was begotten, as we learned last week, from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So those of you who fully understand that, raise your hand. It's a mystery. It will not be fully understood, and I don't believe we are supposed to fully comprehend God, because if you would know something through and through, then you would be at equal with that thing. We are, of course, not. We have very finite minds. But I'll I'll continue here. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after meaning the Holy Spirit didn't come along a few million years after the Father and the Son. Nothing is greater or smaller. We don't hold the Father up here, and then we kind of bring the Son a little lower, and then, you know, the Holy Spirit, since He's the third, doesn't hold as high a rank. That's not the way it works. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. Earlier than this creed, the Nicene Creed states in 325 AD, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. So some would hesitate to worship the Holy Spirit. He is God. We worship the Son, our Savior. He is God. And we worship the Father who decrees all things. He is God. Because He is God, He is not a created being as are other volitional creatures like us, those who have a will and intelligence. The angels, both heavenly and fallen, created beings, They are not God. They are not eternal. They were created, or they are not infinite. They were created. They are eternal in the fact that we will live forever. He has existed from eternity past and will exist forever, as Hebrews 9.14 calls him, the eternal spirit, proving in many other places, as we did last week, his divinity, that he is God. All other divine attributes that the Father and Son possess are possessed by the Spirit. And we could run through all of those attributes. And I know on our website, the church website, Pastor Bryce went through the attributes of God. If you would like a more in-depth, in-depth study of that, you can refer to that series. And the Spirit is immutable. He's unchangeable. So everything 
that we learn about him will be him forever. So just as you learn basic math facts in second, third grade, we can depend on these teachings our whole life. They will not change. All of these statements about the Holy Spirit are not man's invention, as some would say. If they were, they could not be trusted. If everything that I'm saying to you were from my own mind and experience, you cannot trust it because we know the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And as the Bible talks about the heart, it's not just how we feel. Valentine's Day, we see a lot of hearts, a lot of emotions at Valentine's Day. But the heart is not feelings. It is our being. It is our intellect. It is our will. It is our desires, including our passions, our feelings, and emotions. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Our trust rests in the faithfulness of God and his revelation in Scripture. Lastly, we examine the tools that we have to understand God and his works. We talked about biblical theology. And that is examining all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, not just parts, but how they all relate to each other. And the creeds and confessions like we just now read and catechisms of the church throughout the last 2,000 years, historical theology. And systematic theology where we look at faithful men and even some women who have uh, not as teachers within the church, but who have given great insight, especially uh, for um, daily living and practical life. But we, we look to this systematic theology to determine what Scripture says, what the church has stood for, and also how we can apply that to our daily life, lives practically. Because the study of the Holy Spirit is not for the purpose of browbeating your neighbors with our steep intellect, but is meant to bring us near to God, that we might gaze upon Him and His glory and to become holy as He is holy, to become conformed to the perfect image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And that is, of course, as the Spirit directs. We cannot do this of our own will. We cannot be conformed to the image of Christ just because we want to, People have tried that by their own might and their own power, and it always is futile. We don't want to endeavor in futile things. We want the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can become like Christ, to please Him and to please the Father. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for our morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which is our guide. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who is uh, the one who gives us life and who um, directs and orders our lives. We thank you, Lord, for our Savior, who in him we have all hope and he su supplies every need. And Lord, I pray that our time now would be pleasing to you and that you would be glorified and that we would become uh, who we should be in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So following our effort to establish his personhood and divinity based on the truth of Scripture, we seem to naturally move into the study of his works. 
So that is where we are today. It is a look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And I was originally going to call this Footprints in the Old Testament, but I thought that might be a little too cliche because I've read that in a lot of different books. But um, it is his works in the Old Testament. Naturally, because the Holy Spirit is mentioned more frequently, as we learned last week, in the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, one would simply thumb past the Old Testament and get to the good stuff, right? The Acts, that's where the power is. That's where a lot of uh, churches base their view of the Holy Spirit solely on the New Testament. But the Old Testament, although it is often passed over in regards to the work of the Holy Spirit, not because he's unmentioned, but because seeing him clearly is difficult, especially in the personal terms. The Old Testament describes the Spirit of the Lord coming upon someone or being poured out or clothing someone instead of his personal descriptions of him and he doing certain things of the new. Although his works are often opaque, can't clearly see, his work is not only there but lays the foundation for all things of the New Testament. There is no strength of the New Testament without the grounded foundation of the Old. And if the work of the Holy Spirit was absent in the Old Testament, and there was no work of the Holy Spirit moving men towards the coming Messiah and directing them towards the future and regenerating hearts, then the power of the Old Testament would be, well, I can't, I can't really give a hypothetical for that. I don't know what the New Testament would look like, but I know that it would not have the power as it does. We wouldn't have the overshadowing of Mary coming upon and uh, conceiving Christ in the womb. We wouldn't have the power of the Spirit raising Christ from the dead. So we have a lot of uh, uh, parts of the New Testament, essential parts that would be missing. The power, we wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't understand where that power came from, but in the Old Testament, um, Augustine puts it this way. He says, the new is concealed in the old. So there's this thing coming in from the Old Testament. It's concealed. We can't clearly see it, but in the new, the old is revealed. So we see this personal God in the Old Testament. He's not as clearly seen, but in the New Testament, we look back and we say, ah, that was him working. That was him regenerating. That is why people trusted in the coming Messiah, though he had not yet arrived. That's where that faith came from. B.B. Warfield, and he was the one who inspired my study on this topic this morning, an American theologian from Princeton University, the seminary, and he was known as one of the last of the, uh, they called him um, the Lion of Princeton uh, before a big split uh, in doctrine. But his big push in his time was the inerrancy of Scripture, and he, he writes this about the work of the Old Testament, uh, or the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber or a room, richly furnished, so it's full of all of the ornate furniture, but dimly lighted. So everything's there. It's, it's move-in ready. But you can't quite see it because it's dimly lighted. 
The introduction then of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before. But it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. It's all there. But the New Testament brings in that light. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there almost comes into view. You can kind of see a glimpse of a chair here, and it kind of looks like a dresser over here. But as soon as the light enters the room, we can see, ah, that was the work of the Spirit. That is the coming of Christ. He says, uh, thus the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. This lesson will examine three spheres of the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament. First, the cosmic spirit. We'll explain that in creation. Secondly, the spirit's work in the history of Israel. Warfield calls it the um, theocratic spirit. And thirdly, the spirit's work in individual relations and specifically the regeneration of Old Testament believers and what that exactly looked like because it's different than the New Testament when the Spirit came at Pentecost. So, first, the Greek word cosmos means literally order. Today, cosmos, or cosmos, or cosmos, if you pronounce it the old way or not, we usually say cosmos, is a general term used to describe the universe. Famous cosmologist Carl Sagan. Is anyone here familiar with Carl Sagan? Okay. Has anyone ever read his book? Came out in 1980. Okay. I wouldn't say you're worse for not reading it, but I would say he wrote it. And it was also a video series that you can actually access on YouTube. I watched a couple of episodes. Um, I'm not going to offend anyone if I say it kind of sounded Star Trekian, Star Warsian. I'm not really sure how I would describe it, but he sought to teach that the universe created itself from chaotic beginnings and that each of us are made of bits of, in his words, star stuff. He said, the cosmos is within us. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. So through our own reasoning, the cosmos is then able to understand itself, whatever this impersonal universe is. From his perspective, the impersonal universe exploded in chaos by means of no understood cause and by pure chance and the laws of nature, somehow present, formed sentient beings. Now, I won't get into the impossibility of nothing creating itself or how life comes from non-life, but I will state the biblical position and the Holy Spirit's role in creation. Warfield calls the Holy Spirit the cosmic spirit because it is he who was the executor or the catalyst, the effective cause of the once empty dark, formless planet 
the one who ordered this um, as yet unfilled and unformed planet. It is he who ordered the creation as the Father willed it and as the Son spoke. R.C. Sproul states that Genesis 1-2 is a dramatic proclamation of cosmos, or order, not some chaotic soup of matter, but a who, who is the author of order. When we discuss the creativity of artisans in music, sculpting, painting, literature, or graphic design, we are describing the use of the artisan's imagination coupled with the technical skill to execute some work of art. For the artist, there is always, though, a medium necessary to accomplish this work. In music, maybe a violin, as we hear so beautifully played from time to time here at church. Sculpting has clay, painting a canvas, literature, ink and words, graphic design, a computer. Even in dance, there is a need for the human body. The creativity of God is not the creativity of man. The Hebrew word bara is used exclusively in the Old Testament in regards to God creating ex nihilo, out of nothing. No medium is necessary, only the imperative, the command, let there be. Augustine describes this divine imperative as fiat creation. Fiat, the Latin word meaning to be. He spoke, and it was existence from nothing. We are told in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. We read that, in, and that's Colossians 1.16. The Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father and Jesus was integral in creation as we will read. So in our minds, the Father wills the creation. The Son speaks the Word. And the Spirit, as we will read, the hovering um, person over the creation was the effective cause of the ordering of those things. Now, Scripture does not say how molecularly water originally became water from nothing or the exhaustive description of where the first green leaf sprouted, but we know it was the imperative or the command of Christ and the divine ordering of the Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson states in his teaching series, which you could actually find on Amazon Prime if you're a subscriber, and I would recommend it because his teaching is, I would say, much more full than mine. He is, he is a wonderful teacher. He says, the Holy Spirit brings effect to the Word of God. That is as succinct an explanation as I have found for his work in the creation of the physical word, world. Again, this is not an exhaustive explanation, but it gives our minds an idea of how he participated in the ordered creation. We find in verse 2 the Spirit hovering over the dark, formless, empty creation. It says the earth was formless and empty, and darkness 
was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over, hovering over, brooding, some interpret it, over the surface of the water. The word hovering, sometimes translated as brooding, as a bird would hover over its eggs within a nest. The Hebrew word for this hovering, brooding, or moving of the spirit is raha, conveying the idea of shaking or fluttering. Raha is used only once more in Scripture. So this is a very special word. In Deuteronomy 32.11, to illustrate the Spirit guiding Israel during the Exodus as an eagle hovers over her young in a barren wasteland. And the verse says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and he caught them, he carried them on his pinions. Sinclair Ferguson, as I mentioned before, says that this is no accidental analogy. He says, it cannot be accidental here in Deuteronomy 32, 10, 11, and Genesis 1, 2. It occurs in conjunction with the verb rahab. An analogy is thus drawn in the Old Testament between the hovering of the Spirit of God over the inchoate or the incomplete creation and the presence of the Spirit of God in the as-of-yet incomplete work of redemption as the people are wandering through that wilderness. The purpose of the Spirit in creation was to bring the formless and empty waste to a point of form and fullness. One rich consideration of creation is the fact that it was formed to be a temple of the Lord, created for the purpose of worshiping God. David states in Psalm 19.1, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The church, and in our church services, we find these mirrored elements declaring or telling the glory of God, proclaiming his handiwork, the outpouring of, of speech. And Ferguson, again, writes in his book, he says sometimes we pour too much. He's, he's talking to, about himself. He's a pastor as well. But he said that outpouring of speech, he says sometimes you have to say, whoa, time's up. But I would never say that about Pastor Ernie or Pastor Bryce, just so everyone knows. Nor should you. And we also find the revelation of knowledge. In his work, he reveals himself. And we see him revealing himself in Scripture in our church services. God, through the Holy Spirit, has brought order and fullness into his creation. And in that order, we might come to worship him. This order and fullness within the church is also found within the believer today, as we will study. Because now it brings it at the end, to our individual spirit, as we will learn. We know that our bodies, we, we've read scripture that our bodies are the temple of the Lord, supposed to be a place of worship, just as the earth was originally created to be a place of worship. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Are we declaring his glory and proclaiming his handiwork? Psalm 104, 30 states, you send forth your spirit and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So this order, when the spirit is present, is contrasted with this chaos and disintegration when the Spirit is removed in Job 34, verses 14 and 15. If he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his Spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. So, Scripture does not give us the details, as we've said, scientifically, of how he ordered creation or how he breathed life so that Adam became a living soul, and how life is not only created, but continually sustained by his power. But it is a reference fact that the Spirit is the executive of these tasks. The Holy Spirit is imminent or active within the creation, but he's not entangled in creation. He is transcendent, we would agree, above the creation The trees outside are not the Spirit, but they are held together by the Spirit, by His power. Life continues. He hovers or broods over rather than is merged in the waste of waters. He doesn't become the waters, as some would teach. He is the effecting cause of cosmical activities and is kept separate from the matter to which He gives the movement. And we know that all things have a movement, don't we? As we look in, teles- or in microscopes, yeah, telescopes as well, we can see the movement of things, planets and whatnot, but in microscopes, the amazement of scientists when they can see clear, more clearly and more clearly the small moving particles that they can't explain. They don't know where this power comes from. By the word of Christ and the power of the Spirit, a rock is formed from nothing. The matter of the rock is created out of nothing by the Spirit, and by His power it continues to exist, but the rock is not the Holy Spirit. The same goes for living things. He holds together the life on earth by His power constantly. In Job 33, 4, he says, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If he were to remove his sustaining power, all life and all matter would disintegrate into chaos once more. Now those that believe in pantheism, the older term for that is cosmotheism, believe that everything that makes up the universe is an extension of itself, which is called God. They have to give it a name. They'll just call it God. The rock is God, the water is God, animals are gods, and people are gods. This was the belief system held by the Egyptians when Israel was enslaved for 400 years, and why the Israelite people were themselves steeped in idol worship. Pantheism, associated today with Hinduism and the New Age movement, which began in the 70s, 1970s, We know Hinduism has 33 million gods and counting. 
And the New Age movement recognizes this universal oneness. They call it monism. But then they're also pantheists because of all of the worship of nature and things. So these ideas are very much active. They didn't end with the end of the Egyptian empire. As uh, I would say, worse, it, it's expanded and gotten more in-depth, in especially in the New Age movement. But let's now look, we're going to shift from the creation now to the theocratic spirit. A theocracy is a government established where God is king. The theocracy of Israel throughout the Old Testament and the covenant promises the Holy Spirit is seen as the divine power working in the nation for its protection, in its governing, instructing the people and leading the people, as we've already said, in the wilderness, but more than that. And there are four specific groups of individuals in which the Spirit of God supernaturally endowed with power and ability to fulfill their role to sustain and progress Israel. These four groups are the judges, national leaders such as the kings and the priests, because the priests were very influential in leadership, the craftsmen, and prophets. So on your handout, I've got a list of judges. I'm not going to read through all of these judges and reference all of them in Scripture, mainly because some of them were not gifted by the Holy Spirit and empowered. Some of them actually took their leadership role by force, such as Abimelech, who attempted to become this self-made man. He actually ruled for three years after uh, killing 70 of Gideon's sons. You're like, he was a judge? Yes. But obviously this was very displeasing to the Lord, and we read about his uh, very tragic end, or maybe not so tragic. Maybe some people cheered because of this evil finally being addressed. But we do see some judges endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit to be these chosen vessels for God's sovereign purposes. Othniel is chosen to deliver the Israelites from Cushan Rishathim, who oppressed Israel for eight years. Why? Because the people were disobedient. And we see this recurring over and over again. And because the people were disobedient, God would judge the people. But because of his promise, they wouldn't be forever lost. And then he'd bring in a judge that he would empower by his Holy Spirit to rescue and save the people. So Othniel. In Judges 6.34, the judge Gideon is said to have been clothed by the Spirit. And usually we find the word clothed in the ESV. In the NASB and KJV and things we see came upon or came upon mightily. The Spirit came upon Gideon to rescue the people. He and 300 people chosen by God were used to deliver the people of Israel, although they had previously done, again, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see the graciousness of the Spirit of God empowering. He is very gracious. Jephthah. Well, let me say one more thing about Gideon. He had a lot more men than 300. God commanded that he take away these 
men. One reason for that was Gideon didn't want to accept this responsibility at first. Remember, he was the one who said, all right, I'm going to put a fleece out. I'm going to see which part of the dew is on the fleece and which part is on the grass. He wasn't confident in the leadership of God's spirit. And so God was going to teach him a lesson. I'm only going to give you 300 men because we know that God says it is not by might nor by the will of man, but in the strength of God that victories are won. Jephthah in Judges 11.29 was said to be empowered by the Spirit in the exact same language as Gideon. Samson was moved or stirred by the Spirit, and later the Spirit came mightily upon or rushed upon Samson. Samson was not gifted with wisdom from what we are told in Scripture. If you know the story of Samson, you could find that he made very unwise choices over and over again that led to his own demise. I would have loved to have seen Samson in old age, honestly. But because of his own choices, he faltered. But God in his graciousness allowed him to do that one last great act of pushing the pillars and the house falling on the evil men that blinded him. So all of the judges empowered by the Spirit were only successful then due to the Spirit's work. In fact, when any of the judges themselves attempted to add to, as in the case of uh, Jephthah, he said, I'm going to make a vow with the Lord. And he said, um, whatever I see first, whenever I uh, return from my victorious battle, I give it to the Lord. I offer it as an offering to the Lord. And who opened the door? His daughter. And it's implied that she, her life was taken. I've read other places where um, she was given in service to the Lord in the temple or in their um, tabernacle there, but um, I'm not going to speculate on that right now, but we know that he suffered his own personal consequence because of him adding to what the Lord had said, or even those that um, took away from what the Lord had said. The Spirit is shown repeatedly to rest upon, clothe, rush mightily upon, but not indwell. Not indwell. And we'll learn in our future of, of our series how there was a change in the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer at the time of Pentecost. And Christ alluded to this whenever he said, the Spirit has not yet come. When he shall come, so there was this expectation of a future event, just like in the Old Testament, the Messiah would come, and then Christ came. And it was very similar with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But these are re there are reasons for this, such as this empowerment was not the power of regeneration. Just so we're clear, when the, the Spirit rested upon these individuals, it was not a new heart being given to them. It was a strength, it was an empowerment for the sake of Israel, the nation. And that is why Warfield calls him the theocratic 
Spirit. It was for the purposes of God and his promises to the people that he was faithful to the people and faithful to his own promise. This endowment of the Spirit could also be revoked in due time, as we saw with Samson. When his hair was cut, the Spirit, it fell off of him like garments. He was clothed, and then he wasn't clothed until his hair regrew and he was able to meditate upon God when he was blinded in prison. And the Spirit began to, again, become enriched in his life. Or with King Saul, we know that the Spirit departed from King Saul. And you're like, well, I I could have swore whenever I was studying about the regenerating work of the Spirit and the assurance that we have in our salvation that we never lose the Holy Spirit because we are sealed by Him until the day of redemption. You're right. You're right. This covering, this empowerment of the Spirit in the Old Testament even in King Saul, was not regeneration. So let's not be confused or become tripped up that when the Spirit departed from Saul, that he lost his salvation. Because we know that anyone who has salvation is sealed until the day of redemption. In Exodus 31, moving on now to the craftsmen of our four groups, Bezalel, or Bezalel, was filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom, understanding, in knowledge, in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. He was a man of many talents. He was very valuable. And why? Why did God choose Bezalel for this task? It was very important. And the Lord wants to be worshipped as he is to be worshipped. And these objects of worship, all of the garments of the priests, all of the basins that were necessary, all of the carving, all of the ornateness, you can read about all of that. And it's a very detailed description And it is a representation of the beauty of God. God loves beauty. If you don't believe me, step outside. Examine a blade of grass. There is beauty in a weed. I know, they don't look beautiful in the middle of summer. But there is beauty in God's creation. And as we see with Bezalel, he was a beautiful craftsman, the spirit empowered him to be so. And not just him. Aholiab was also, and others that were under his uh, authority, were also included in this work of craftsmanship. And it says that they were given skill to work alongside Bezalel to craft the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat upon it, and all the furniture of the tent, the table and also its utensils, and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering also with all of its utensils, and the laver and its stand, the woven garments as well. I was just talking to Lisa Glant about um, what the ladies did here yesterday, and all of the specialty um, 
skills that they're teaching to one another in gardening and, and sewing. I think she was going to be doing uh, sewing as well. And I was thinking about that as I was rereading all of this. And um, Bezalel, I'm sure he could, with a holy ab and the rest, they could make a, a mean garment. I bet they could. They were also in charge of the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments of his sons, the anointing oil also, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. This was a momentous task, but they were not alone. God empowered them to craft these necessary items in the proper way for proper worship. And then national leadership regarding the kings of Israel... We've already discussed this in part, but uh, the Spirit of God coming upon Saul first, and then also the Spirit rested upon David when he was anointed as a, as a boy. Now, both men are said to have this anointing of the Spirit, this resting presence of God upon them, but again, this was not regeneration. When Saul was disobedient, we are shown that the Spirit departed from Saul. When David was disobedient, if you remember, he begged God not to take the Holy Spirit from him. What was the difference? Saul was unrepentant. His was not how God was displeased. It was that he would not lose the kingship. That's really what it came down to because we could see in his life that this power corrupted him in such a way that his hard heart of stone became harder and harder so much so that he was willing to, you know, throw a javelin at David while he's playing music at him. And there's this hate pent up in his heart. But yet David shows his penitence whenever he sinned. David, when he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, was repentant. David had consequences. We know the son that was conceived in his sin perished. We know that. Very hard, very dire consequences. But still the Holy Spirit directed him personally from that time on. Because the Holy Spirit was working, gave him a new heart, he would not have repented and had that grieved heart if the Holy Spirit was not working within him. So then we have the prophets. The prophets were also gifted with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they, they received a direct revelation from God. I know we're running out of time here. I apologize. Uh, but the prophets were given direct revelation from God. And uh, we can read about um, this in Zechariah, in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel. Any prophet who was a prophet, Hosea, Joel, all of these men were used in the time of the Old Testament for the purpose of leading the people to Christ, directing them to him. In the fullness of time, he would come, and also would come the work of the Holy Spirit. So, finally, the work of the Spirit of God is also working within the hearts of individual people. And the question I'm going to ask to end here is, are we any different than the men and women of the Old Testament? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews, the Israelites, and the Greeks, that would be us Gentiles, are all under sin, 
As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. This is an indictment on all people, and rightfully so. It would be cruel for us to go on believing that we could somehow attain a righteousness of our own and then be judged on our own merits, on our own works on Judgment Day because we would all be found wanting. We will either be judged on our own merits or on the merits of our perfect prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. The people of Israel were delivered by judges, ruled by kings, directed by prophets who were gifted with divine gifts individually, but Christ contained all of these without measure. In John 3.34, it says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So all of these gifts that we've been discussing are all united in Christ. He is the fullness of God in the flesh. So, uh, he says it will come about after this in Joel 2.28 and 29, that he will pour out his Spirit on all mankind. And like I said, we are going to see this coming of the Holy Spirit in the way that he works in our present age, in the future. Um, but it is encouraging, and I hope, uh, hope you stick with this study. I know we ran out of time here this morning, but I hope you got something out of that. And um, let us thank the Lord for our time. And if you want, you can look through the, the list of judges this week and And praise God for his faithfulness, even in our own lives. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your work. We thank you for our salvation, those who you have given a new heart, those who trust in you. We pray, O Lord, that we would worship you as we have learned how much you desire to be worshiped and how much you deserve to be worshiped. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to worship that we, you've given us a heart to worship. And we pray, O oh Lord, for our time now, and may you help us to continue to worship um, in the hearing of your word, in the praising of you in song, and with our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.